Welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast where we discuss Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. I am your host for today, Karen. We are in episode eight of The Longest Day in Chang'an or Chang'an Shuarshichen. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter, or else email us at karenandkathy at chasingdramas.com. As always, this podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. I'll start with a plot recap and then head on to discuss history, which has quite a bit of interesting components that are rather subtle, so we will be learning quite a bit. In episode eight, after a couple of episodes away, we finally return to the Wolf Squad members and the two mysterious ladies. One of them was Wang Yunxiu, the daughter of a very famous general, and the other person is the fictitious Wen Ren. She was the one who lured Wang Yunxiu to the Wolf Squad, Blair. Both of them now, these two ladies, are captured, but what is interesting is that Wen Ren isn't too scared like she is scared about being in this hostage situation but she knows the plans of yo sha and jumps forward to explain that she knows more information than she's letting on and that makes her valuable yo sha as a reminder is the leader of the wolf squad and the man we only met briefly in episode four if you will recall, Yo Sha gathered this particular group of Wolf Squad loyalists to wreak havoc in Chang'an and force the Tang Dynasty to send troops against their sworn enemy, the Da Shi Guo. He was the one who cut Cao Poyan's hair and has greater plans for tonight. The fact that Wen Ren knows Yo Sha and his plans surprises the rest of the Wolf Squad members because they're like, who is this chick? The time now is Mo Chu or Ri Zhong Er Zhe. The sun will begin to set from its peak. At this point, Zhang Xiaojing is out there looking for the wolf squad lair, and Jing Anzi, or at least Li Bi, received word for the general Cui Xi to quickly head to Zhang Xiaojing's aid. However, news has traveled everywhere about Zhang Xiaojing's betrayal of one of his spies. Li Bi is quick to understand Zhang Xiaojing and decides to continue to believe him, but Cui Qi is extremely derogatory towards Zhang Xiaojing. Cui Qi believes that a guy who betrays a spy is not worthy of trusting or helping. Except he doesn't have a choice given the direct orders from Li Bi, so he heads out to find slash aid Zhang Xiaojing. I do find it interesting that the news traveled back to Jing Anzi before Yao Zhuneng was able to send word the way he wanted. There was a brief scene where we see Yao Zhuneng being a little disconcerted at hearing news of Zhang Xiaojing's request for Cui Qi and whatnot, having already traveled to Jing Anzi when he himself was going to send this information. Clearly, someone jumped the gun, and we don't know who it is. Let's turn back to Zhang Xiaojing. Zhang Xiaojing has made his way to Xiu Zhengfang, the place where these wolf squad members are hiding. And he himself has disguised himself as someone selling lanterns for the festival. That way, it's not as easily recognizable that he's out searching for someone. 
Wen Ran is still bartering with the Wolf Squad members when they observe Zhang Xiaojing wandering around the streets. And even though they don't know who this guy is, they think that, hmm, a lone person in their vicinity should be eliminated. So they want to snipe Zhang Xiaojing dead. Wen Ran also surveys the scene and spots Zhang Xiaojing. Her eyes turn wide. She clearly knows Zhang Xiaojing and stops the archers from firing their arrows at the last moment. She reveals that Zhang Xiaojing is her husband and is actually allowed to go grab him by the members of the wolf squad. Within the wolf squad, though, a divide occurs because Cao Poyan wants the group to leave given that he believes their hiding spot has been exposed while Ma Ge'er thinks they need to wait for news from Yu Sha. Wen Ran is able to hop out of the hiding spot and greets Zhang Xiaoxing with a smile. She is happy to see him since it has been around six months and is wondering how he was able to escape from death row or prison. He doesn't lie and says he's free for a day before going back. She is upset at the news and tells him not to continue seeking the people in the house where she came from. She wants them, the two of them, she and Zhang Xiaojing to escape. It's obvious that Wen Ren actually knows quite a bit about what might be transpiring today in Chang'an, but at this moment, Zhang Xiaojing just wants to have her escape from her current danger, so he tells her to grab a flag from his old spot in Wanyan County and to wait for him at a certain tea spot. Using a lantern as a signal, he agrees to meet her and escape tonight. She is over the moon to hear this news and actually skips away with the lantern. Interestingly, while her cover story for him is that he is her husband, he calls her Yato, which is a colloquial and sometimes endearing term for a young girl, meaning there's obviously a different viewpoint in how the pair sees each other. This girl clearly thinks more of him than he thinks of her. And in their conversation, there is a lot of discussion about Wen Ren's father. He is the more important person who is suspiciously not around at this moment. I personally don't know if Zhang Xiaojing ever actually wanted to meet up with Wen Ren at this point in time or later um, tonight because the next thing we know or what we see is that Zhang Xiaojing is attacking the wolf squad layer all by his lonesome. I'm a little surprised and confused he would do this without waiting for backup. I mean, I kind of understand because he's like, you know, time is of the essence, but he's by himself and he probably knows there's maybe 50 or 60 people in this lair. It is an intense fight scene with very quick and brutal attacks, though I appreciate the groundedness of this scene because unfortunately with only one person and also a hostage of Wang Yunxiao in tow, Zhang Xiaojing has no option but is forced to surrender so that nothing happens to Wang Yunxiao. Zhang Xiaojing is brutally tortured with hot irons to the flesh as Ma Ge'er enjoys watching Zhang Xiaojing suffer. Now while all of this is happening, Cui Ti, the general, is slow as can be on his way to quote-unquote aid Zhang Xiaoqi. He basically takes the busiest route with lots of crowds because he doesn't think a guy like Zhang Xiaoqi deserves any respect. Meanwhile, back at Jing'an's Li Bi, 
Xu Bin and Han Qi pieced together the connections between Zhang Xiaojing and Wen Zhan. After a lot of investigation, and basically right now, uh, when I think about how Xu Bin is searching for intel and Li Bi is asking for things, it's like Li Bi is making a lot of different Google inquiries and going down different rabbit holes, and Xu Bin is the uh, Google response information to all of his questions. Turns out Wen Ren's father, Wen Wuji, was in the army with Zhang Xiaojing in a brutal battle several years ago. Only nine survived out of the 220 or so men in that battle from the Tang side, including Wen Wuji and Zhang Xiaojing. As for how the Blaze Gang is connected, several months ago, uh, Wen Wuji and Wen Ren's fragrance shop was forced to close. Li Bi is able to deduce that this closure may have forced Zhang Xiaojing to act against the Blaze Gang, who were involved in the forced closure. As a reminder, Zhang Xiaojing killed 34 members of the Blaze Gang. Sure enough, members of the Blaze Gang were quick to happen upon a solo Wen Zhan and quickly surrounded her. Uh-oh, she was not their intended target, but it seems like they know who Wen Zhan is. The Blaze Gang's original target was, of course, Zhang Xiaojing. They thought, okay, we see him in this Xiu Zhengfang, uh, this rather um, far away or isolated area of the city. This would be a great place to seek revenge. So how close was Wen Ren's father to Zhang Xiaojing? We get a flashback to when Zhang Xiaojing was a soldier defending the beacon or feng sui bao against invaders. In the crown, there are a few other men, including Wen Wuji. The events of the battle were already described earlier by Li Bi, but now we see it in much more detail and in action. In the battle, Zhang Xiaojing and company are using their meager resources to try to defend their fort and desperately need backup from nearby soldiers. They've sent up distress signals and do not understand whatsoever why reinforcements have not arrived when the nearby troops are close enough that they should be able to come reinforce their beacon. There also is enough soldiers and resources to come support their poor group of men. Zhang Xiaojing and company don't have too much time to think, though, before they come under brutal attack by opposing forces. The one thing they said is that they have to protect their flag. That is a symbol of why they were fighting. We will talk more about this battle in the history portion of our podcast episode. The drama episode ends with more festive matters. On one hand, I am impressed with the scene, while on the other hand, I'm like, come on, Sui Qi, let's get going. Why did you leave or lead everyone down this road? Sui Qi and his group of soldiers observe a battle of the bands, pretty much, as different parade floats uh, with drums and musicians basically battle it out for the best mastery of their art. We learn that basically... These impressive acts are fighting it out in order for a winner to be crowned and that winner is able to then proceed and help celebrate the Lantern Festival tonight in front of the emperor himself and will also participate or accompany the emperor in lighting the Grand Lantern tonight. A high honor. 
the troops are unable to pass the floats, particularly when the crowd is waiting to see one megastar, Xu Hezi. We will see her in the next episode. Let's move on to some history. There's actually a lot of fun little nuggets in this episode, so let's dive right on in. Right off the bat, in the beginning of the episode, the Wolf Squad leader Cao Poyan has a sword called a Shi Zi Ge Wan Dao in Mandarin. The rough translation is a cross saber based on the hilt. It's really hard to see, and I don't think it's actually a cross saber, but there is an original currently housed in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. These Turkic Mongol sabers originated during the 8th century and were primarily used up until the 14th century. You'll notice a slight bend right after the hilt of the sword, which was customary of the swords at that time. It is really interesting to see the detail that the production of this drama put in into the weaponry and the armor of each character. And so this uh, sword or saber is another example. It is quite different from the weaponry that the Tang soldiers use. The next observation is a quick blink and you'll miss it scene. But when Zhang Xiaojing arrives at the secret location. Uh, in Xiu Zhengfang with his horse, we see that the horse saddle is covered with a cloth. That's because a, if one is poor, they might not be able to afford a proper saddle, and b, a lot of fancy saddles have jewels to accessorize the saddles. As such, people don't want to be too flamboyant with them, which is why they are covered with a cloth. Certainly, a very, very uh, detailed observation here. Next. Let's follow Cui Qi for a while, Captain Cui and his troops, when they are essentially casually or dragging their feet to meet Zhang Xiaojing. They pass a couple of dancers wearing masks. As we hear from another soldier, the people are dancing Nuo Wu or the dance of Nuo N U O. It was also known as Gui Xi or ghost opera, and it is one of the oldest forms of dance for the Han people to perform during sacrifices or pray to gods and drive away plagues. It originated from nature worship or totem worship, and actually witchcraft worship from the Han people, and has a long history of combining local Chinese religion with performance art. Typically, when the nuowu is performed, the dancers wear masks to represent the gods or historical person in which the dance is referring. This type of dance still remains in many villages of China. The accompaniment for the dance usually、uh, consisted of drums or gongs. We actually do see small drums referenced in today's episode, but I want to discuss them in the next episode because we actually get a good look at them for the performance that we will see. There is another dance that is briefly mentioned in the drama. The soldier says that the style of Nuowu was actually heavily influenced by An Lu Shan's introduction of Hu Xuan Wu or Sogdian Whirl Dance. This Sogdian S O G D I A N Whirl Dance was a very popular dance during the Tang Dynasty. The dance was imported to China from the Sogdian merchants that traveled to the major Chinese cities of Chang'an and Luoyang. In Chinese, the countries that exported Sogdian world dance 
included Tai Ju Guo Kangju, Shi Guo Kes, and Mi Guo, which are located around current day Uzbekistan. Hu Xuan Wu literally translates to foreign world dance, and it comprised of a woman dancing and spinning in a circle. This dance was frequently referenced by contemporary poets. We have since found Tang Dynasty pottery and funerary walls that depict this type of dance. Indeed, Emperor Tang Xuanzong and his favorite concubine Yang Guifei were recorded to have performed this type of Hu Xuan Wu. The accompaniment was also drums. The dance itself has been resurrected for modern audiences, although it's tough to say if these really were similar to the dances of that day, since all we have now really are some paintings of the clothing and descriptions to make these assumptions. But what I do want to point out is again the impact of this Anlu Shan character, who, as we've said before, does cause a revolt, and really heavily damages the Tang Dynasty. But he is the one to introduce this Hu Xuan Wu that becomes very popular in the Tang Dynasty. I'm jumping around a little bit, but given the theme and also the location, I wanted to also talk about the grand float battle where everyone turns to watch the drummers perform and we also wait for the arrival of the superstar Xu Hezi. There is an interesting chant that is spoken by the drummers um, that actually comes from the Amitabha Sutra from Buddhism. If we turn our attention to the float with the flutist, there are two vertical banners. On the banners are written the four lines from the Tang Dynasty poet Li Shangyin. Here we have an anachronism because Li Shangyin the poet lived in the 9th century instead of the 8th century where we are today. The poem itself is called Guan Deng Le Xing, or Watching Lanterns. It goes as such. Yue se deng shan man di du, xiang che bao gai ai tong qu, shen xian bu du zhong xing sheng, xiu zhu xiang ren sai zi gu. The translation goes as such. In the imperial city, the moon is as water. The flower lanterns are mountains. The extravagant and fragrant horse carriages fill the large streets. Even though I am free, I cannot see the beauty of the lantern festival. I can only embarrassingly take my local villagers to see the purple goddess at the temple. It's interesting that the drama decided to put this poem on this float because, as you just heard, the poet isn't enjoying the Lantern Festival. But we will learn a little bit more about why that is in the next episode. And finally, let's talk about Zhang Xiaojing's flashback and past in the military. In the drama, we are introduced to Zhang Xiaojing during his days in the army and the fateful siege of the Feng Sui Bao, or of the Beacon. We learn from Li Bi's rather cold recounting that in the 8th Regiment of the Anxi Army, there were 220 soldiers protecting the Beacon, but only 9 survived. These beacons weren't referencing a specific location. The beacons themselves were a series of locations to warn of enemies. 
Think of the system for the Great Wall of China. If one beacon was lit, then scouts from other locations would know that an enemy was coming. There were beacons set up 30 miles apart, so the one that Zhang Xiaojing was stationed at was the beacon for the city of Beshbalik, or Bahuancheng. The army that Zhang Xiaojing and his men were waiting for were the Hanhai Jun army. During the Tang Dynasty, the empire had different armies stationed along the northern route of the Silk Road leading out of the empire. The army was 12,000 strong with 4,200 horses and were stationed in Qingzhoucheng, or present-day Xinjiang. The army was established in 702 AD by the emperor or the female emperor Wu Zetian. The siege of the beacon or Feng Suibao Zhizhen actually did occur in 735 AD. In October of that year, the Turkish tribal leader and Kagan Soluk attacked Beshbaluk or Bahuancheng, a city in present-day Xinjiang. After the new year, General Gai Jiayun led his troops north to attack Saluk and his forces and crush the Turkish army. We do hear snippets of the Gai Jiajun in the conversation between Zhang Xiaojing and his friend Wen Wuzi and other soldiers. And that is it for today's podcast episode. Friendly reminder that if you are in the States and are looking for sites to watch Chinese dramas or movies, please head on over to our sponsor, Jubao TV, J-U-B-A-O TV, which has a selection of Chinese movies and dramas to watch with English subtitles all for free. They are available on Sling TV, Flex, online via Jumo, X-U-M-O, or else on TV on Xfinity and Cox Contour. Once again, everything is free. Thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you all in the next podcast episode.